Tonight I'd like to continue my exploration of the four Brahma Viharas. Last week we talked about metta and this week we'll talk about compassion. One of the existential questions of being human is how do we deal with the immense amount of suffering that there is in life, that there is in this world? So many levels our personal stories, our personal suffering, suffering in our communities, global suffering. How do we hold this truth of life? It is said that there's two wings of Buddhism, and they could be two answers to this question. The first wing is wisdom, understanding how this world is, understanding the natural laws of the universe and learning to live in harmony with the way life is, develop peace of mind. The mindfulness practice that most of us are doing is about developing wisdom. And a lot of that is about learning how to deal with our hearts and our minds and how they react to this plane of existence we've taken birth into this world we've taken birth into this world of constant change and our reactivity in the face of that which is a large part of the suffering of life so that's the wisdom answer the compassion answer compassion is said to be the other wing of buddhism This is developing this quality of heart that's able to stay open and caring amidst the suffering and the difficulties that exist in life. It's an open and caring heart. So these two wings, compassion and wisdom, are both paths to making peace with life and making peace with suffering. They're not so entirely separate in the practice. They actually uh, work together. They balance each other. They strengthen each other. We need both wings. A bird doesn't fly very well with one wing. We need two wings, both wings. Both wisdom and compassion strengthen our ability to face life as it is with balance, peace, connection, and openness. Compassion and metta, which I talked about last week, are interestingly also um, part of the right intention that Miyoshin talked about a few nights ago, part of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha's teachings, it's fascinating when we study them, how they uh, weave together and in and out of different um, formulations. So there's the four Brahma Viharas and there's the three kinds of right intention, and and they weave together. As I mentioned last week, I think in this culture we have a bias towards wisdom, overemphasizing wisdom, which is the cool aspect, and underemphasizing qualities like compassion, which are the warmth. One story that shows us bias uh, Joanna Macy, who's a, a Buddhist teacher, uh, was 
talking to her Chinese monk, uh, kind of rattling on to her Chinese monk, a Chinese monk friend about her doctoral work on dependent origination, one of the uh, more complex teachings of the Buddha. And so she's going on and on, and then he asks her, genuinely interested, and does this help you to increase in compassion? So he was pointing her towards, um, you know, the dependent origination uh, is a lot of the wisdom teachings he was pointing her towards, uh, remembering compassion and including that in her practice and in her study. The Buddha was once asked by a leading disciple, would it be true to say that a part of our training is for the development of love and compassion? And the Buddha replied, no, it would not be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our training is for the development of love and compassion. This was a common way for the Buddha to answer questions. Um, What he's pointing towards is uh, the very uh, strong importance of developing love and compassion in our practice. So what is compassion? We should start there. I know Miyoshin talked a little bit about this the other night. I would say that compassion is a tender, caring quality of the heart in the face of suffering. The Pali translation is something like the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. It's this friendliness of metta that we talked about last week as a foundation. It's taking the friendliness of metta and orienting it towards suffering. I think of compassion as a sweet and poignant feeling. It's pleasant and sweet because of the connection that we feel with others, the connection that we feel with life the aliveness of a heart that isn't creating separation. But it's poignant because it is oriented towards suffering. It's oriented towards the fullness of the vulnerability of being a human or another being. It's um, That vulnerability is very poignant. So it's a sweet and poignant feeling. It's a natural response that we have to care in the face of suffering. Kids are natural at this. If you've ever seen a child when somebody gets hurt, they come over and they want to touch it. They want to um, connect and care. It's that quality that we all have, that kind of innocent quality with suffering in the face of suffering. Practice helps us to reclaim this innocence of compassion by working with and dissolving our reactivity in the face of suffering. So we often find out what compassion is by seeing what it's not, which is um, sometimes gross and sometimes subtle uh, types of reactivity in the face of suffering. Sharon Salzberg was once teaching in Russian, and she describes in one of her books how 
uh, she got the feeling that the translator wasn't quite translating compassion as um, she understood it. So she asked the translator, she said, you know, what are you saying for this word compassion? And he said, oh, I describe a state of being terribly overcome with someone's sorrow, like having a stake through your heart and having the burden of someone's pain burdening you too. We sometimes think that that's that that's compassion. That somehow, if we're at, you know, it's, it might sound uh, overstated, and I think a lot of us it may have a more subtle form of it. That somehow, if we're feeling compassion for somebody, that we have to be suffering somehow with them. That it has to hurt. Um, so that's not compassion. That's um, that's sorrow, being overwhelmed with grief or despair. And it's not wrong that we feel that in the face of um, suffering, but it's not compassion. True compassion contains no aversion to suffering. A number of years ago, I did this practice as an intensive practice like metta. And um, so when we do it as we do metta, you start out with the first person you develop compassion for is somebody who you know is suffering. So uh, the person I chose was a friend at that time who was quite depressed. She was in a pretty severe depression. And um, so I was developing, you know, sending the phrases, which I'll mention what they are in a minute, but I was, um, you know, sending compassion and the phrases. And I wound up feeling quite... um, I wound up getting very overcome with sorrow and grief. And uh, um, at a certain point, I realized that I, it wasn't working because it, it wasn't compassion that I was developing. It was really just getting overwhelmed. So I actually chose for my first person somebody who at work, a woman at work whose husband was dying of, compa- of cancer. And so... Um, with this, with her as my first person, where I wasn't so close that I got quite so involved, I was actually able to start to understand a little bit more clearly what compassion was, and then later be able to transfer that um, feeling to my friend. That's how we work with the Brahma Viharas. You start with somebody easy who can really help you uh, understand what the quality is, and then you... Uh, Uh, do it with other people or send it to other people. Developing compassion is challenging. Um, That first first time when I was doing it, I'd first done a number of weeks of metta and um, felt like things had gone pretty well. And then when I switched to compassion, I, I did. I kept running into these problems of, of feeling a lot of grief and sorrow and, and, um, uh, having more trouble finding right, the right balance is. And so I went into, um, uh, Joseph was my teacher, so I went into him and I said, I feel like I got an A in metta and I'm getting an F in compassion. <laughs> and I meant it as a joke, <laughs> but just to say that it's, it's, it's challenging. It's, it's a paradox for us, I think, to figure out how do we relate to somebody suffering or to our own. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. How do we relate to suffering with connection and care without getting overwhelmed with grief or sorrow? The other aspect with compassion is that um, 
deep compassion has a strong feeling of connection and of recognizing our shared human status. So another thing that compassion isn't is it's not pity, which is another thing that we can often think of compassion as pity, but it's not. Pema Chodron says, Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. So the foundation of compassion with others is recognizing our shared humanity, that um, recognition of our equality. It comes out of this gut feeling that we're the same. It's interesting to look at um, Western industrial society and what's valued. And in Western industrial society, it feels like what's valued is independence and competence and mastery and that uh, vulnerability is definitely looked down upon. But vulnerability is the heart of compassion. So if we if we deny vulnerability, which we um, definitely, I feel that in the United States, I can't speak for all of the Western world and I can't speak for other cultures, but in the United States there's this um, vulnerability is like the last thing in the world you want to be is vulnerable. <laughs> and so I think that that's an obstacle to developing compassion because compassion comes out of recognizing our shared vulnerability as humans. So compassion isn't pity. Compassion isn't grief and sorrow. Compassion isn't being overwhelmed. Compassion is free of aversion to suffering. It cares, but it's free of aversion to suffering. It's uh, a little bit like that expression by Rio Khan that Miyoshin mentioned the other night. Oh, that my priest's robes we're wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Is there any aversion in that sentence? I don't feel it at all. I feel um, care. And there's also just a, a little bit of a sense of lightness. That's the wisdom part. Compassion needs the wisdom also. So he says, in this floating world. So there's care and connection, but there's... Um, there's not this sense of getting overwhelmed or lost. It's a floating world. So by developing compassion, we cultivate a wide and open heart that can contain the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life. So it's a heart that can stay open and connected because it doesn't have any need to reject any part of life.
So I said in the um, formal compassion practice, we take this open-heartedness of metta and we orient it towards suffering, and we start with somebody who um, is suffering a lot, and we wish for the person to be free from suffering. So the traditional compassion phrase is, may you be free from suffering or may I be free from suffering. I think the tricky thing with that phrase for many of us is that it can easily fall into aversion to suffering. When we say, may you be free from suffering, we can easily then um, kind of tack on the, the wanting suffering to go away. And uh, so I like another phrase that's a little, um, to me, takes away that, uh, that, that challenge. I like the phrase, I care about your suffering doesn't have that same agenda behind it that we can have with the other phrase. So there's this wish to alleviate suffering, um, our care about suffering without aversion to it. Very tricky. Compassion doesn't come out of our longing to change suffering, but out of this feeling of connectedness. Compassion can be very strong, and it can bring tears to our eyes. It can be a very full and um, strong feeling. Or compassion can be quiet, calm, wide like the ocean. So again, there's various ways that it might manifest, and we don't need to, um, we don't need to have preconceived notions of how it should look. In the wisdom practice, in the mindfulness practice that most of us are doing, we learn compassion by relating to the pain and the suffering that arises in our own experience as part of life. So learning how to engage and relate to whatever challenges, pain, difficulty comes up. Most of us get an opportunity or a number of opportunities to do this on a retreat. I hope you get some opportunities to do it, do it on retreat. <laughs> so we're learning how to come to peace with our, with, um, our own suffering, our, the suffering that arises in our life by experiencing it, learning to hold it with a non-judgmental non-reacting mind and slowly developing compassion. In this process of practice, we're learning to uh, walk through all the landscapes of being human, the landscapes of joy and the landscapes of sorrow. Since most of us are fairly um, happy to walk through the uh, landscapes of happiness, our task is often to be equally okay in the landscapes of pain and sorrow. So we learn to walk through, uh, or to to, uh, be um, alive and connected in the thunderstorms of anger or the blizzards of fear, the deserts of loneliness, the tundra of 
physical illness and our own mortality. And we learn to walk these landscapes with our eyes open and with an understanding of how things are. And we get stronger this way and our compassion grows. So we develop compassion by seeing how we relate to experiences of pain or challenge. What do we do with them? When they come up, do we find that we reject them? Whether it is the pain in the knee or the fear in the heart, do we reject them? Do we try to make them go away? Do we learn to be with them, to hold them gently with care? This is our challenge. This is what we learn. When we're really able to open, accept, and hold um, pain and challenge, we see that compassion is a natural reaction of the heart. I want to read a story from a Zen uh, book of little stories. And this was written by somebody who was in prison. He said, In prison, there's a tremendous emphasis on keeping things suppressed. To be vulnerable to one's feelings can mean opening yourself to a tremendous amount of misery and anguish. There was an inmate practitioner who came to me one day and told me, Actually, this was written by a Zen teacher, and this is what the inmate practitioner said. I've been in prisons a lot rougher than this one. I was in a prison where somebody got stabbed nearly every day. He said, you get so used to it that you just notice it and go back to your conversation. You don't feel it. You just sort of pass it over. Then he told me, you know, I was in the yard the other day and somebody got stabbed, and for the first time it went right through me. In that moment, I felt all the pain I carry that this whole place carries. He said it in the most beautiful way, with innocence, like a child discovering for the first time. I looked at him and smiled and said, Welcome back. For me, this was an incredible demonstration of how practice works. If you really engage it over time, you just naturally come back to your own humanity. And while compassion isn't explicitly stated in this story, it's there. It's there in his opening to suffering. When he really opens and lets it in, he says, I felt the pain I carry and I felt the pain the whole place carries. So there was that connection with others. And then there was that kind of innocence and and beauty and sweetness. That was compassion. It just naturally came with that opening, that real opening to suffering without um, any kind of trying to push it away. So we each have our own personal demons, our own um, struggles. The Sufi poet Rumi says, everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. I like this. (laughs) Practice changes us from raw dough to a well-baked loaf. And one of the main ingredients of this well-baked loaf is compassion. So what's your struggle? 
Is it terror? Or is it rage? Confusion? Loneliness? Our biggest struggle is also our biggest opportunity to develop compassion. It's a precious gift. My biggest challenge over the years uh, has been fear. Many different kinds of fear. I once uh, wrote a Dharma talk on 15 kinds of fear that I'd uh, identified in practice. I think it's up to about 17 now. And um, it's been the biggest gift for me. I've learned so much from fear. And it's been so responsible for helping me to learn compassion. Without that challenge, I don't know if I would have gone as deeply into um, understanding compassion. So our ability to feel compassion in this world, to be a Bodhisattva of compassion is directly related to making peace with, with our own suffering and the suffering of being human, just the existential suffering that we see in life. So we see how much equanimity we can develop, how much compassion we can develop around our own struggles, and then we can offer that to others. And we find that as... Um, Compassion grows, our heart becomes stronger. And we can face interior and exterior suffering with more strength, more balance, more clarity. And we give this gift to the world. So compassion makes us strong. It gives us energy. It gives us confidence and tolerance. It increases our ability to be open in this world of change. So fully developed compassion is the ability to hold uh, suffering with equanimity. So there is that wisdom factor in there, the equanimity. We need the equanimity. If we don't have equanimity and the wisdom factor, we'll get overwhelmed in the face of suffering. However, if we just have the wisdom and equanimity without the compassion, it may be too cool, it may be too disconnected. As I said, they work together to create a strong heart, a strong and caring heart. Developing compassion is important for our own peace, but it's also important for this world. Mahagosananda is a 
or was, uh, the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism, a very important leader for the people of Cambodia who have been through such a tremendous amount of suffering in the last decades. And he said, The suffering of Cambodia has been deep. From this suffering comes great compassion. Great compassion makes a peaceful heart. A peaceful heart makes a peaceful person. A peaceful person makes a peaceful family. A peaceful family makes a peaceful community. A peaceful community makes a peaceful nation. A peaceful nation makes a peaceful world. So the development of compassion, it ripples out. It has an effect that ripples out in this world, healing the world as we heal ourselves. And so as we're sitting here developing compassion, learning how to relate to suffering with care, with equanimity, we're offering this gift to the world. It does ripple out. It does make a, a difference. Compassion and understanding help us not to make ourselves separate from others. A very basic healing for this world. When we look deeply, we see that we humans are pretty much the same. We know that we all have the seeds of love and compassion within and that we also all have the seeds of hate and anger within. And this understanding opens up the possibility of compassion when others suffer or act unskillfully because we've accepted this in ourselves and we don't have to reject it in others. Mother Teresa was once asked why she did her work with the most desperate poor and she replied, because I realized I had a Hitler in me. Pretty strong statement for Mother Teresa. True compassion is humble. It creates no separation. When we thoroughly realize compassion, we no longer see any separation between self and others. No better, no worse. I think my favorite uh, poem on compassion is by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's fairly well known. Some of you have probably heard it. Um, It's called Please Call Me By My True Names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope, The rhythms of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayflower, I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, 
and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are but one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up, And so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. You can see that the compassion that Thich Nhat Hanh uh, talks about and shows comes out of this deep feeling of connection with others and of non-separation, of humility, So compassion means an acceptance of the truth of suffering, but that doesn't mean that it's passive. This is some place where we can get confused sometimes. Compassion um, can both accept that suffering is there and take steps to alleviate it when possible to bring kindness into the world. Thich Nhat Hanh also said, compassion is a verb meaning that it's active. One of my uh, heroes in life is a woman named Eddie Hillesom. She was a young Jewish woman who lived in Amsterdam during World War II. And there's a book um, called um, An Interrupted Life, which is her diaries of the last two years of her life when she was 27 to 29 years old. And she wrote during the time of um, of the Nazi takeover of Amsterdam and of the time when the Jews were being transported to the camps and exterminated. And she was Jewish, as I said, and she knew what was happening. Her friends and her um, knew what, what, what was happening. And she was offered the chance to escape uh, from Amsterdam. And she chose to stay, knowing... Uh, that she would very well be sent to the camps. She wanted to be with her people and to um, take care of them. Just this beautiful heart of compassion. And what's amazing in this book is you see her transformation over two years. So when she starts the um, diary, she's 
I wouldn't say totally self-centered, but she's she's very um, superficial in many ways. And through just the suffering that is happening and that she sees all around her, she just deepens, and her compassion just deepens and deepens. You can just see it happening over the time. And her understanding gets so broad and her heart gets so large through the, you know, the, just the horrible suffering and challenges that she went through. One of the um, passages from her diary, she says, You must be able to bear your sorrow, even if it seems to crush you. You will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong, and your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it. And then look at this part of compassion. She says, Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Do not seek to be avenged on all Germans, for they too sorrow at this moment. Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that is its due. For if everyone bears grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. And if you have given sorrow the space it demands, then you may truly say, Life is beautiful and so rich. She found peace with with her suffering or the suffering around her and um, was then able to be very compassionate uh, not only towards um, her fellow Jews but also towards the Germans who were causing so much of that suffering. And she went to the camps and it was said... um, there are people who reported that she was just this um, beacon of compassion, that she uh, helped so many people, and then in the end she died also in um, the camps. I myself have um, felt like that I've learned a lot about compassion in my work as a psychotherapist in the inner city. I um, I work as a Spanish-speaking therapist in um, a a town near here called Holyoke. It's not a large city. It's quite small, but it actually has a lot of um, inner-city problems. And um, I started working there uh, 13 years ago. So I was in my mid-30s. And um, at first I was quite overwhelmed. I was a little bit unprepared for the... um, just depth of challenges that the people I worked with, the clients I had, had in their lives. Um, Most of the people I worked with were Puerto Rican because I speak Spanish, and um, uh, most of them were poor, so they were suffering from a lot of discrimination, poverty. Um, Holyoke's a small town with a lot of uh, uh, gang violence, drugs, and... um, just the challenges that you see with poverty. And um, so I was really um, not sure what to do with this immensity of suffering that I would hear about when I would go to work. And so the first thing I wanted to do was fix everything, which is often our um, reaction to suffering, too, is we want to fix it. And um, so I would try and... um, and it didn't always work. It didn't work a lot because there was so much, you know, generations of suffering and, and um, you know, centuries of imperialism and racism and um, uh, just a lot of pretty um, intense uh, 
deeply ingrained patterns that weren't just also about my clients' personal lives, but about this whole social order and colonialism in Puerto Rico and very, very um, difficult stuff. So the first couple of years, I really worked hard to try to fix everything and um, and kind of wore myself out a lot and became overwhelmed a lot. And then over time, I started to um, understand kind of the limits of what I could do. And I started to understand that what seemed most helpful for the people I worked with was that I cared, that I would be there, I could, I would be a witness, I would help, you know, problem solve when that, when that was um, helpful and all, but mostly that I would um, be there and, and be connected and care. And um, over time I found that uh, I was able to have more equanimity about the suffering that I could hold it and have more care. And so maybe I couldn't heal the problems with um, the housing authority or with the son who was on drugs and stealing from his mother or the kind of unrelenting, grinding stress of poverty. But the people I worked with knew that they weren't walking alone, and that made all the difference. Compassion heals, that's what we see. It gives people the courage to go on. It alleviates the the suffering of alienation and isolation. I found a great story related to that that I want to share with you. It's called Downwind from Flowers, a Tibetan story of healing by Lee Payton. Several years ago in Seattle, Washington, there lived a 52-year-old Tibetan refugee, Tenzin, as I will call him, who was diagnosed with one of the more curable forms of lymphoma. He was admitted to the hospital and received his first dose of chemotherapy. But during the treatment, this usually gentle man became extremely angry and upset. He pulled the IV out of his arm and refused to cooperate. He shouted at the nurses and became argumentative with whoever was near him. The doctors and nurses were baffled. Then Tenzin's wife spoke to the hospital staff. She told them Tenzin had been held as a political prisoner by the Chinese for 17 years and underwent a lot of torture. And so the chemotherapy um, treatments were giving him flashbacks, and that's why he's having so much trouble. I know you mean to help him, she said, but he feels tortured by your treatments. They are causing him to feel hatred inside, just like he felt toward the Chinese. He would rather die than have to live with the hatred he is now feeling. And according to our belief, it is very bad to have hatred in your heart at the time of death. He needs to be able to pray and cleanse his heart. And so they sent him home and um, got a hospice nurse to, to take care of him. And then somebody told the person writing the story, told me that the only way that Tenzin could heal the damage from torture is to talk it through. But when I encouraged Tenzin to talk about his experiences, he held up his hand and stopped me. He said, I must learn to love again if I am to heal my soul. Your job is not to ask me questions. Your job is to teach me to love again. I took a deep breath. I asked him, So how can I help you love again? Tenzin immediately replied, Sit down, drink my tea, and eat my cookies. 
Tibetan tea is strong black tea laced with yak butter and salt. It isn't easy to drink, but that is what I did. For several weeks, Tenzin, his wife, and I sat together drinking tea. He also worked with his doctors to find ways to treat his physical pain. But it was his spiritual pain that seemed to be lessening. When spring came, I asked Tenzin what Tibetans do when they are ill in the spring. He smiled brightly and said, We sit downwind from flowers. I thought he must be speaking poetically, but Tenzin's words were quite literal. He told me Tibetans sit downwind so they can be dusted with the new blossoms pollen that floats on the spring breeze. They feel this new pollen is strong medicine. At first, finding enough blossoms seemed a bit daunting. Then one of my friends suggested that Tenzin visit some of the local flower nurseries. I called the manager of one of the nurseries and explained the situation, and he agreed. So the next week, I picked up Tenzin and his wife and their provisions for the afternoon. Black tea, butter, salt, cups, cookies, prayer beads, and prayer books. I dropped them off at the nursery and assured them I would return at 5 o'clock. The following weekend, Tenzin and his wife visited another nursery, and the third weekend, another. The fourth week, I began to get calls from nurseries inviting Tenzin and his wife to come again. One of the managers said, We've got a new shipment of Nicotinia coming in and some wonderful fuchsias and, oh yes, some great Daphne. I know they would love the scent of the Daphne. (laughs) And I almost forgot we have some new lawn furniture that Tenzin and his wife might enjoy. Later that day, I got a call from the second nursery saying that they had some wonderful, colorful wind socks that would help Tenzin predict which way the wind was blowing. Pretty soon, the nurseries were competing for Tenzin's visits. The nursery employees started setting out the lawn furniture in the direction of the wind. Others would bring fresh hot water for their tea. Some of the regular customers would leave their wagons of flowers near the two of them. At the end of the summer, Tenzin returned to the doctor for another CT scan to determine the extent of the spread of the cancer. But the doctor could find no evidence of cancer at all. He was dumbfounded. He told Tenzin that he just couldn't explain it. Tenzin lifted his finger and said, I know why the cancer has gone away. It could no longer live in a body that is filled with love. When I began to feel all the compassion from the hospice people, from the nursery employees, and from all the people who wanted to know about me, I started to change inside. Now I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to heal this way. Doctor, please don't think that your medicine is the only cure. Sometimes compassion can cure cancer as well. So compassion um, heals others, heals the isolation and loneliness, but it also heals our own isolation and loneliness. When we feel compassion, we feel connected. We don't feel separate. I remember one time when I was sitting in the hall at IMS and I had this deep experience of loneliness. I was feeling so lonely. And then all of a sudden, I had this understanding that 
all over the world there were other people feeling lonely, just like me, just in the same way. And in that moment, I felt such tremendous compassion for others and for myself. And I didn't feel lonely anymore. (laughs) I felt connected. It wasn't that sense of separation, but rather that sense of of our um, human connection. Oh, there's so much more to say, and there's not much more time. (laughs) I guess the last thing I want to say is that compassion practice is rooted in non-harming. So when compassion is strong, we want to alleviate suffering, and we don't want to cause more suffering. We don't want to add to suffering. So our practice of non-harming, which is based in the precepts that we took earlier this evening, that's our active compassion practice, is not to add to the suffering in our own lives and in the lives of others. So the precepts could be called an active expression of compassion. And when we keep the precepts, we offer others the gift of fearlessness. We offer them the gift of freedom from suffering by not adding to their suffering. And there's so many ways that we can work with the precepts that really um, spread our compassion out in the world and with all those whom we contact. Thank you for being here. Thank you for developing metta, developing compassion, this gift that you give to countless beings through your practice. Zen Master Sansanim describes it this way. He's talking about this uh, metal bell he has next to him. He says, Originally this metal was ugly rocks. Then the rocks were heated for a long time over a very hot fire until finally they became liquid. Now this liquid will be poured into a mold and will take the shape of a big beautiful bell. And when it cools, someone will strike the bell and the beautiful sound will fill the whole universe. We are all like rocks. And when we practice hard, we heat up our hearts, making a big hot flame, which melts our condition, situation, and opinion until we become like molten metal, ready to assume the shape of a great bodhisattva who, when struck with the cry for help, makes a big deep sound which resonates and fills the whole universe and makes everybody happy. that big deep sound that resonates and fills the whole universe, the sound of compassion. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.